Okay, time to invite the kids to come on up front and have a seat for our children's message. All right, come on up. All right, good to see everyone. Come on over, guys. Come on over this way. Find a spot over here. There's some room over here. All right, good to see everyone this morning. Okay, now, as you heard, Pastor Jeremy's going to be preaching on suffering. And so sometimes when we have something in our lives, it's helpful to have a, a Bible verse that will help us with that, right? So this morning, I want to teach you a verse. It's one that you could even memorize and learn so that you know it, so that you have it in your mind. And it can be, it can be helpful to you if, if hard things come your way, okay? And I'm going to use some items to help with that, all right? So first thing I have here is this bowl, all right? So this bowl represents your heart, all right? So guess what's going to be in the verse? Something about your heart, all right? Our hearts, all right? Then I have this colored water here. And this water represents God's love. Guess what? God's love is part of the verse too, all right? So here's what it says. The verse is Romans 5, 5. Can you all say Romans 5, 5? Good. Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Can you say that? God's love has been poured into our hearts. Good. You've got it. So you know what? No matter what we face in life, good or bad, no matter what comes our way, that verse is always true. That verse that says, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Good. That's always true. And so when things are going really well, say it with me, God's love has been poured into our hearts. And when things are going not so well, God's love has been poured into our hearts, right? When we face times of suffering and hurtful, sad things, God's love has been poured into our hearts, right? When we don't understand what's happening and why things in life are happening the way they are, we still know that God's love has been poured into our hearts, right? And you know what? You know, sometimes we still sin, don't we? Did you know that even when we sin, God's love has been poured into our hearts? That's still true. In fact, a few verses after that, in Romans uh, five, chapter 5, verse 8, it says that God has shown his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, the fact that that's true, that Jesus died for us when we were in sin, proves and shows to us that God's love has been poured into our hearts, right? Because that was a great love that God had. And you know what's true? God's love is eternal. You know what that means? It's never going to end. We don't have to worry about God. Like this water is eventually going to run out, right? We don't have to worry about that with God's love. God's love is eternal. It will never end. It will never fail us. God loves us so much. He loves each one of you so much. His love will never fail you. So if all that is true, that, that God's love has been poured into our hearts, what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? 
If we know that God's love has been poured into our hearts, then we can respond to God with love, right? We can love God. We can be thankful for His great love. We can rejoice in God's great love for us. And we can continue to learn to love Him more and more and more, right? You've heard of the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, right? And love others. So we can learn to love God. So let's say it all together one more time. Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts. Good. So you can remember that as you go through things this week, and you can tell others that you come in contact with. All right? Thanks. You can go back and have a seat. All right. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. We are in the book of Romans 5, 1 through 5. I do have the second part of Churches from Last Week ready. I'll preach that in two weeks, so come back, but we're going to pause with what happened with the Kellings this week and what's going on in some of your lives that some of you are aware of, some of you aren't. I just thought, uh, I don't have the heart to preach on church discipline. Let's talk about uh, suffering and see what Romans 5, so we're going to talk about suffering and justification and so on. Let's read these verses. This is Romans 5. 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have attained, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us your eternal scriptures. Please teach us to love it and to hate what is apart from it. You are a hiding place, and so we wait on you for your word. Sustain us according to your word that we might live. Uphold us and keep us safe in your love, for we love your testimonies. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in what was the world's capital that time, Rome. Uh, It's actually, strange enough, a missionary support letter of sorts. In the closing chapters, Paul writes that the missionary ventures in the areas from, let's say, Jerusalem up to Rome are basically finished. There's churches in enough places where there's enough Christians to carry on the work of evangelism and ministry, and so there's no more unreached people groups in his area. And he wants to go to Spain, and he writes this letter introducing himself to the church in Rome, asking them to fund his ministry, his mission to Spain. It's a missionary support letter. Uh, And it's very doctrinal. It's one of the most wonderfully deep books in the Bible. 
He spends 11 chapters digging down deep into doctrine, especially the doctrine of justification by faith. And then he takes that doctrine and applies it, as he'll do in this text. In chapter 5, he uh, has a bit of a switch, if I can say it like that. The first four chapters, there's a lot of I's, a lot of you's, and then in chapter 5, he goes to we. He gets uh, more pastoral in his tone in chapter 5. We. Uh, it's likely that the Christians in Rome are suffering, mainly for their faith, and he becomes more motherly, if I can put it that way. He, he changes from objective truth and now takes this objective truth and applies it subjectively to our lives. We. And in our text, he begins out with justification. Now, in order to understand justification, we do have to go back quickly through the first four chapters. You notice in five one, he says, therefore, and as many before I have said, you've got to ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? Um, you've heard that so many times, it's a wonder that you still laugh at that. Uh, and... and and what it's there for is the first four chapters, especially chapter four. But in, in chapters one, one eighteen through three twenty, he goes to great lengths to prove biblically that all, all including Jew and Gentile, are sinful and under God's wrath. That's the point of those first three chapters. He concludes in three twenty with for by works of the law. No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You and I cannot be justified by what we do. We are, apart from Christ, all of us, guilty, condemned, and under God's wrath. He gets very explicit in chapter 3, verses 10 to uh, Go 18, no one understands, none is righteous, not one. No one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together all have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, their tongues deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curtness and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is unregenerate human being before God. That's you, that's me, apart from Christ. You will not get justification unless you grasp that. Justification will be a trite, a sentimentality. It will be nothing unless you realize that's you apart from Christ. That's you. That's what you're like. And you know it. You've proved it. Right? That's us. So we are not justified in His sight in of ourselves. And then in verse 21 of chapter 3, there is this glorious but, B-U-T. Don't snicker, it's not two T's, kids. No one is justified before God, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been manifested. The righteousness of God through faith 
in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What does that mean? The word righteousness is huge. This, this is what Luther hated in the Bible until he understood it. He thought this righteousness referred to God's righteousness, God's holiness with which he condemns man. God is righteous, we are unrighteous, and so we're condemned. And Luther thought this was referring to God's character of absolute, perfect, moral purity. We're not, we're corrupt, and so we're condemned. That's what Luther thought it meant. It doesn't mean that. This righteousness means that which God credits to our bankrupt account so that we can be counted right. This is the gift of God to us. Where where does God get this righteousness? It's Christ's. When Christ was on earth for 33 years or so, he lived perfectly moral, pure, righteous, obedient. Gladly he did it. And God credits, counts, gifts, Jesus' perfect record of obedience to us. That's what this righteousness in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3 refer to. That's what we have. That's what we've been given. And so we are justified before God. This is a legal declaration by God that we are not only not guilty, but perfectly right. That's what you've been given. Amen or something? How do you dopey this morning? Did you take Dramamine before you got here? That's what you've been given. You are counted righteous before the Holy God. As a gift. Just by faith. It's yours. And then chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since... We have been justified by faith. So he's taking this doctrine of justification. Since we have this, now he's going to apply it. We have peace with God. (laughs) This is crazy. This should be... So many of us have trouble with suffering. Why does God let us suffer? Is he good? Why is there a hell? This should be the most troubling thing you ever read in the Bible. God is God and we are not. God is holy and we are not. God is infinite, eternal, and transcendent and we are not. And we have peace with Him. You don't make peace with your enemies. You hold grudges. God sent His Son to die while we were yet enemies. Christ died for us. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. So no one is righteous before God. We're all born enemies of God. But now, in Christ, by faith, we have been justified. And so we have peace with God. And then, as if that's not enough, in in verses 2 and 3, we have, but wait, there's more. Two of them. Any of those infomercials? You guys buy that stuff? What's wrong with you? It sits in your closet and you never use it. 
But here we have, we've been justified by the grace, so we have, we have been justified by faith, and so we have peace with God. And then verse 2, we have this also. Through him we also, there's more. There, justification gives more. It grants peace with God, but it also grants grace in which you stand. And then in verse 3, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. So that's the structure of these five verses. Chapter 5, verse 1, stands on the four, first four chapters, outlining justification. And then it shows you three great gifts of God of justification. We have peace with God. We also have grace in which we stand. Not only that, we can rejoice in our sufferings. Those are all gifts of justification. You not only get justified before God, you get peace with God forever. You get grace in which you stand. You get to rejoice in sufferings. So, Paul applies then justification to your past, to your present, and to your future. Since we've been justified, we have peace with God. In chapter 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died, the past tense for us. In verse 10, while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled, past tense. We have been justified. So that right now and forever you have peace with God. And then in the present tense, verse 2, through him we have, past tense, obtained access by faith into this grace, present tense, in which we stand right now. That word stand is significant. Romans gets a lot into suffering. Chapter 5 gets into it. Chapter 8 gets into it. Paul views suffering as a testing, a proving. You're going to suffer as a Christian. Your faith, your trust, your hope in God is going to be tested. You are going to be tried you're going to suffer. Even your own sin is going to contribute to this. How are you going to stand? How are you going to make it? Stand is a very purposeful term. It's a very active term. It's a strong term. Grace here is eternal favor with God. We saw it in verse 1. We have eternal peace with God. It's God's Kindness to us. We don't deserve it. We've passed from death to life. And one of the realities is that all of our suffering, all of our sin, all of this world, even other believers and the devil, will work to perpetually give us uncertainty towards God. Does He love me? Will I make it? We are assaulted because of suffering with whether or not we will really endure in Christ. And standing in grace is opposed to that must stand in grace. You must learn to stand in grace. You must learn to remain stuck in grace. So past tense, we have peace with God. Present tense, we stand in grace. Future tense, the end of verse 2, we rejoice, we will rejoice 
in the hope of the glory of God. This is all related to justification. Because of justification, you have peace with God. Because of justification, you stand right now in grace. Because of justification, future tense, you will see the glory of God. When Paul writes, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, what he means is, hope is future, right? You don't hope for something you already have. Hope is something you don't have. Hope is something that you want. So we rejoice in the hope, in the future desire to obtain the glory of God. What is the glory of God? This is just another way to say you'll see God. Glory is what shines, what is transmitted from something or someone. The Bible says that a woman is the glory of man. Nobody looks at a man and says, ooh, nice. (laughs) A wife is her husband's glory. How he treats her, how he takes care of her, reflects on him. She is his reflection. He is to lead her and care for her and provide for her and protect her. Cherish her, nourish her, Ephesians 5, and the world looks at her and that's a reflection of him. Look at how well he's taking care of her. Look at her beauty, look at her glory. The glory of God is the reflection of God, it's seeing God. God is the most beautiful, wondrous, amazing, thrilling, spectacular being in the universe. We hope in seeing that. That's our hope. And it's a sure hope. It's ours. And Paul writes here that we rejoice in it. That term rejoice doesn't quite get at the meaning of the term here. It's exalt. E-X-U-L-T. It's what you'll do tonight in the Packer game. I'm serious here. It is exuberance. It is outward expression of an internal joy. We exalt in that. Can I criticize you? Here you're hearing some of the most spectacular things that you'd ever hear. And it's like sometimes people just don't care. No smiles, no amens, no fist pumps, no look at each other. And here you're hearing the greatest news that you could ever hear. And then tonight, when you're watching the game, you'll exalt. And I just want, good, exalt at a Packer game, not a Bears game. Exalt, exalt at a Packer game. But why not exalt in this? God has done everything so that you can behold His glory. He did it in Christ. You didn't have to do anything. You couldn't do anything. You were nothing but a sinner. And he sent his only son to die for you, taking all of your sin upon him, giving you all of his righteousness. You have peace with God. You stand in grace. You will one day see his glory. Exalt in it. Exalt in it. Quit being so white and so Midwestern, please. (laughs) Quit being so German, so Scandinavian, please. (laughs) right like Keith said you sing well I think we can do better I think we can have more hands raised no dancing Uh. 
And I, yeah, really. We need to exalt. We'll see this. We're too concerned with what people think when we're thinking about God, aren't we? Aren't we? We're way too concerned with what somebody will think and with exalting in God. We fear people tisking us more than we desire to exalt in the God who has justified us all by His grace. So Paul writes that justification is first applied in that we have peace with God forever. Second, it's applied in that we stand present in grace. Third, it's applied in that we, will, we, we exalt in the future hope of seeing God's glory. And then fourth, that's where I'm going to spend the rest of our time in verses 3, 4, and 5. Not only that, not only do we exalt in the hope of the glory of God, not only that, but we exalt in our suffering. <laughs> that is almost nonsensical. We exalt in our sufferings. You've read this before, I assume. You've read Romans 5, and you've read, we exalt in our sufferings, and you've just blown right by it without any twinge of conscience that you want to say, if you really thought about that, yeah, right. Exalt in our sufferings. We're Americans. We have a birthright not to suffer. We have liberty and pursuit of happiness. <laughs> we, Americans don't suffer. We hate it. We'll spend lots of money to not suffer. We'll go see all manner of professionals to alleviate our little twinges of suffering. We create fad workouts and fad diets because we don't want to suffer. We spend billions of dollars on insurance to guarantee that if we get sick or injured, we'll have the greatest access to any medical care so we don't suffer. And Paul says here, we'll exult in our sufferings. This is un-American. Paul does not wear a mega hat. And this, is, this is Christianity. This is this is discipleship 101 here, brothers and sisters. Following Jesus means learning to exalt in sufferings. How does this work? How does this work? You're suffering, right? Kellings are suffering. Some of you have lost spouses, you're suffering. You have MS suffering. You have children leaving the Lord, suffering. You have your own foolish stupidity, sin, suffering. He's suffering. You're supposed to exalt in it. E-X-U-L-T. Hands raised, full-throated exaltation in your suffering. How does this work? Isn't this relevant? 
I cannot believe anybody says the Bible is not relevant. If they say that, they just haven't read it. And you, and you should tell them that. And if you say that, you're, you just don't know it. This is immediately relevant. How does this work? Well, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. We exalt in our sufferings. Some synonyms for suffering in the Bible are distress, affliction, and trouble. The immediate context here in Romans, I said, is he's writing to Christians in Rome who are likely suffering for being Christian. But Paul generalizes it. He includes here any test to your faith, any suffering. Paul wrote in Acts or said to young believers in Antioch in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, through many sufferings, through much trouble, we must enter the kingdom of God. Being a Christian does not rescue you from suffering. Being a Christian disciples you in learning how to exult in it. This is why this health and wealth damnable gospel is so damnable. It's such a lie. If you just have a little more faith, you won't suffer. That is such a lie. Being a Christian does not save you from suffering. It disciples you to learn how to exalt in it. So Paul wants to teach us how the doctrine of justification, that we are counted righteous before a holy God by faith in Christ, should teach us to think and respond to suffering. This is most applicable to you. So again, in verse 3, Paul uses the same exact word that he does at the end of verse 2, exalt, rejoice. We have peace with God, we stand in grace, we exalt in seeing God in the future, and we exalt in suffering. And the reason Paul says that we exalt in suffering is because we know something. You see that in verse 3? We rejoice in suffering. We exalt in distress knowing we know something. Justification by faith teaches us something about all of our troubles that allows us to exalt in them. Okay, So here's the thing. I am not saying what Hallmark sentimentality does about suffering. We don't rejoice in suffering. Suffering is suffering. Loss is grievous. It's not the suffering itself. Christians, don't don't lie to yourselves. When you lose a spouse, that is grievous. Death is not a friend. Broken limbs are not good Spousal sin is not joy. It's what we know about it that we exalt in. You see the difference there? It's what you know, it's what justification says about suffering that causes you to exalt in it. It's not the suffering you exalt in, it's what you know that justification teaches you. To be a disciple is to be a learner, right? This is, this is like, um, ninja disciple. This is the lesson of lessons. This is Jedi <laughs> disciple. This, this is the lesson. This is what Christians 
need to grow up into more than anything is how we view suffering through this truth that we are justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus. This is the lesson you and I need to learn. Because we've we got to know something. You're tracking with me here? So you you got to be thinking, what do I need to know? What do I need to know? What do I need to know? Because you know when you're in suffering, suffering distorts truth. Suffering is a liar. There's a saying, me, um, hurt people hurt people. When you're hurting, you end up hurting others. Because it, it messes with you, it twists you, it distorts reality. So Christians learn to know something. What do we need to know? Why can we exalt in our suffering? Paul's answer is, look at what God's grace produces in our suffering. What do you want as a Christian? Maybe the better question is, what should you want? What should you desire? Well, we should desire to become more holy, right? We want to grow in Christian character. We want to grow in obedience to the Lord. We'd like to be more hopeful. We'd like to actually have hope in God. Maybe you want to have more endurance, more perseverance in your Christian walk. You don't want to go like this so much. You want to be more consistent. You want those things? That's what Christians want. We want to become more steadfast in Christ. We want to become more like Christ. We want to have more hope in Christ. You want those things as a believer. We want those things, right? Suffering is the factory that produces them in your life. You will not have those without God bringing suffering into your life. Why? Because suffering produces endurance. Because endurance produces tested and tried character, and character produces hope. See, what we want is fast food Christianity. We want hope without anything else. We just, I'll just take a number five, supersize it, hope with not just. Pull up to a window, give it to me. We want cheap grace. We want grace that costs nobody nothing, especially not me. We don't want to actually follow Jesus, right? Because if you followed Jesus and you know anything about his life, it wasn't a fun one. Right? Parents have children. And parenting is hard. Parenting is suffering. Right? Parenting causes you to do it by faith to follow Jesus. Because it's hard. Marriage is hard. Being a single is hard. You're called to follow Jesus in the hard. And you don't want it. You don't want all of the 
endurance and character and hope that that hard produces. You just want all of the endurance and character and hope with all of the hard. We want glory without any of the suffering. We want eternal life without a cross. We don't want to follow Jesus. We don't want to follow Jesus. I, I'm Honestly, I don't want that. I don't want to follow him. I want all the results without all of the trying and testing and hard stuff. I don't want that. I want to raise a trophy at the end without a season of suffering. But suffering produces endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. Perseverance produces Christ-like character. Christ-like character produces hope. You can't have one without the other. You can't. You want to become more like Christ? I know you do. You just don't want to do it the way that God wants to produce it in you. You want to do it on your terms. You want to do it on your terms. You don't want to live in a world that we have ruined in sin and that a holy God is setting right in His Son. You want to live in a Disneyland where it's just a small world happily after all where there's no sin and there's no death and there's no suffering and there's no divorce and there's no wayward children and there's no cancer diagnoses and there's no whatever singing in church that isn't my kind of thing or whatever you don't want to live in a world where little children die You want the character that that produces without what produces it. Now here's the thing, and you know this to be true. The kind of people you know you can trust are the kind of people who have been tested. Give me the person in our church who has suffered most. That's the person I want to walk with, fight with minister with. Give me Sue. Right? You've walked through MS. Right? Give me that. Don't give me the big tough guy who talks a big game. Give me somebody who's suffered. Because they've endured. Because their character has been tested. Because they have reason to hope in God. Give me a widow who's gone through suffering, her husband's dying. Give me a parent who has grieved and wept over their wayward child. Because that suffering has produced something in their lives that I want to be around. Because they've learned at the end of it to exalt in it because of what it's done. And he closes in Uh, verse 5. And this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope is a major theme in Romans. He closes the book of Romans in chapter 15, 13 with a benediction. 
of hope. I don't think that's the right verse. Anyways, it's at the end. I'm going to close with it as our benediction. Why doesn't hope put you to shame? In your life, especially when you're in trouble or in sufferings or afflictions or distresses, you want something to put your hope in. My uh, dad was diagnosed with cancer. He passed out in the doctor's office. For several weeks, he was flailing around in fear, trying to find something to hope in. Diets, alternative treatments. None of those things are bad, but those were becoming his thing, and he was just all over the place. And I had just finished seminary, so I was filled with theological, theoretical knowledge that I needed to help him with. And so it hit me. My dad had spent 52 years in a church that believed the Bible and preached the Word. Wednesday uh, night we were at church, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Grew up in that church. Really a good church. But it hit me that my dad, throughout those years, had never been given anything that could help him endure well as a Christian in a diagnosis of cancer. No solid, stable, hopeful truth. And so we started reading Grudem's Systematic Theology. I think there's a Friday morning men's study if you want to go to it. It's a big blue book filled with theology. And I said, Dad, let's read this together. And we started in the chapter on justification. And after reading, he said, I'd never heard this before. (laughs) Never heard this before. He maybe heard it, but it never sank in. And it gave him hope that he was justified by God's grace. It just helped him. Because he got hope. And it didn't put him to shame. It was stable. It was steady. It was strong. It was a fortress. It was enough. That's what the doctrine of justification does for you causes you to be able to exalt in suffering. Why? Because justification means God's love has been poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit when He's given you. Justification is God's love. That's God's love. God's love is, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is, while we're your enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son. God's love is, God, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, has poured his spirit into us. And so God is with us. And that's all because of Christ. You notice that throughout these verses, everything is grounded in Jesus. Everything. You have peace with God through Jesus. You have been justified by faith through Jesus. You stand in the grace given you in Christ. You rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because of Christ. 
Everything here is through Christ. Everything here is through Christ. So when he says God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit, don't visualize that. Don't sentimentalize that. Don't put that on a poster. This is in the muck and manure of your life, in the crap of your life, God himself, by his Son, through his Spirit, there. Never leave it. This is God. This is what he's like. And that's the point of this. The reason hope doesn't put you to shame isn't because of how great your hope is. It's because of the object of your hope. It's because of God. You don't evaluate how great your hope is, how strong your hope is, how much quality your hope is. Hope is only as good as the object of it. The reason hope doesn't put you to shame is because God will never put you to shame. Because God will never fail. Because God does never lose a believer. Because God has promised us eternal life in His Son and He will never leave you nor forsake you. God wants this text to reassure you that you will inherit seeing Him in His glory. You are not going to hell, brothers and sisters. God is not against you, brothers and sisters. God will never condemn you, brothers and sisters. The suffering that God is bringing into your life is for your good, brothers and sisters. That's our hope. God. And so that hope will never disappoint you. Let's pray. Well, Father, I pray that you would uh, work this in us. That you would teach us to stand in your grace. You would teach us to exalt in hope of your glory, that you would teach us how to exalt in suffering, and that we would know that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, and character's hope, and that we would know that this hope in you will never disappoint, never fail, never put us to shame. So God, please teach us that. In Jesus' name, amen. So the charge is this. Please pray for each other that the truths of Romans 5, 1 through 5 would sink down deep into the lives and hearts and minds of your brothers and sisters here, especially keeping in mind those who are suffering. That's the charge. Please pray this for each other. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that in Christ, by faith, you are justified before God so that you will abound in hope by the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord.